1: Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of China. However, it is Japan that we are focused on today. The reason why is because I went and I saw a movie that really shook me to my core. It was called Silence. As I sat in the theater watching this movie together with my wife, we were having a date night. It was a Martin Scorsese movie. I don't know if I'm actually saying his name right, but I've seen several of his movies. And so because I've seen several of his movies, movies like Goodfellas and Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, um, I I, because I've seen several of his movies – I I knew kind of what I was going to be witnessing. I mean, usually um, Martin Scorsese movies are the the epitome of American life, right? They kind of depict the dark side of American life. Um, these these movies are usually not feel good movies. So when you watch The Departed, when you watch Taxi Driver, when you watch Goodfellas, you have gang violence, you have adultery, you have um, Uh, rape in the, in the manner of, of underage individuals, um, having relations with people that are, um, of age. So it's, it's one of those, it's one of those things that you kind of go into the theater knowing that this is probably going to be a dark depiction of mission work inside of Japan. So as I'm watching this, it was a vivid, description, depiction of the mission life in early Japan, in feudal Japan. And as I'm watching this, as I'm watching these believers inside of Japan being tortured for their faith and and how there was this purity, this almost purity of those that were following after Christ uh, underground in Japan. I could not help but be reminded of the pure hearts of those that we are serving together with in China. So I asked a good friend of mine by the name of Tim Cole, who has basically lived in Japan his entire life, is a missionary serving there now. Uh, and I've asked him to come on our Back to Jerusalem podcast and share a little bit from a Japanese missionary uh, point of view uh, on, uh, on a film about Japanese missionaries. Um, so we're going to go to Tim Cole. And uh, we have Tim online right now, so let's go to him. Hey, Tim, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Hey, thank you so much for joining us on the Back to Jerusalem podcast. Uh, just for a kind of a, a quick down and dirty introduction, can you just share with our audience uh, what you're doing in Japan and how long you've been working there?
0: Sure. Um, my parents came to Japan in 1952 in response to MacArthur's call for 10,000 missionaries uh, to come and help rebuild Japan after World War II. So I was born in Japan, actually in in the city where um, that, the epicenter of the 2011 earthquake and tsunami took place, and um, so I grew up here. And and then after uh, returning to the U.S. for college and and seminary, the Lord directed me back to Japan as a full time missionary. So I've been involved in uh, Christian camp work for several years, church planting for about 15-20 years, uh, we planted several churches, and then most recently I've been uh, director at Family Forum Japan for the last, um, I've been involved in that work for about the last 15 years.
1: I mean, I, I, you know, I am, um, I'm, I'm a student of Christian history, especially as it pertains to Asia. Definitely, because of my military background, I, I love military history. Um, I've never heard that before. General MacArthur did a call for missionaries to come and, and and evangelize Japan after World War II.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and actually, that was kind of a very remarkable thing because, uh, his call for missionaries took place almost within. Two months, I believe. Actually, it might have been within a month of um, the signing of the surrender agreement at the end of the war. So, um, MacArthur had the foresight to realize that if if something drastic didn't happen in Japan, uh, that Japan would go the same direction as uh, China had gone in terms of becoming communist, and and so he felt like um, the Christian faith. And Christian teachings would be a bulwark for democracy in post-war Japan. And so first he called for a thousand missionaries and then a couple months later he, he sent out a call. He said a thousand's not going to be nearly enough. We need ten thousand.
1: Holy cow. I've, I've, I've never heard of this. Uh, anywhere, and you know, I've I've lived in Asia half my life, not as long as you, but I, I I and I and I've and I've you know traveled to Japan. I've spent time in Japan. I've studied about uh, Christianity in Japan, and I've never heard this. And of course, World War II, especially you know with the son that I have, my son right now is just completely buried in World War II uh, history. And so all the movies that we watch, a lot of the books that we read, a lot of the discussions that we have have to do about World War II. I've never heard this. Before, how many missionaries like your parents actually responded to the call in Japan?
0: Um, it's a little hard to get an exact figure, but, um, the best I can tell, it was approximately 4,000 that, uh, went out within about 10 years of that call. Cause if you, if you, if you think about it, most of the people that were my parents' age were, were servicemen, you know, they were in the war. And, um, and when the war ended, um most of them used the GI bill to go to Bible college or to go to a Christian college or seminary, get trained and then raise support. So it took, you know, a good 4 or 5 6 years before these people actually arrived in Japan. So um the vast majority of them came even though the war ended in in the summer of 45, most of them didn't arrive until 49 at the earliest, 50 and then on into the mid-50s
1: that is to me that is phenomenal and uh, i i had never heard about that and and, and actually the entire reason why i'm uh, i'm asking to do an interview together with you Tim is that i know that um you would have some insight on this this movie that i just watched which is a controversial movie in the church uh, just because a lot of Christians you know they don't feel you know whether it it glorifies missionary work or it kind <laughs> of uh, it destroys the whole Whole idea behind the cause of the missionary, and right. Um, right. and and I felt the same confliction when I was watching it. And um, I was my wife and I we try to have a date uh, about once a week when I am in Asia. Huh. Um, I travel about three hundred days a year, so sometimes I am only in town uh, about three days in one month. Um, right. So when we were together, I was only in town for half a day, and we saw that there was this uh, new Martin's. Uh, Square movie that I, I'm actually... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm familiar. I have to say, I'm ashamedly familiar with like Goodfellas and The Taxi Driver and and Wolf on Wall Street. You know, these are not movies that Christians should be watching or or admitting to openly or publicly. I have. I've watched these. Um, I'm kind of. I you know, it's one of the things that uh, my wife and I, whenever our new movie comes out, we do try to go to the movie theater together as a as a date between the two of us or or something like that. But it also had you know a, one of one of the more well known characters in there guy by the name of Liam uh, Neeson uh, a British actor that I've seen in several movies before, but also another guy by the name of Andrew Garfield, who just played in a, in a an amazing movie about a Seventh-day Adventist called Hacksaw Ridge. And uh, I thought that was phenomenal. And so, okay, I, I definitely wanted to watch this. You know, it's about missionaries going to Japan, and they follow two young Jesuit priests um, that leave from Macau, which I'm very familiar with, you know, seeing them leaving from Macau, going into Japan, um, and and then start to minister. And I have to tell you that while I'm watching this movie, at least in the beginning parts, I'm so strongly reminded of the underground house church in China and how they've suffered and how much they so desired, not on, not on the same salvational type of level as waiting for a priest to come um, absolve them of their sins, but just a desire to have someone come and share from the word because they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have, you know, um, uh, guidance and they, 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 there was so much about Christ that they wanted to know, um, from you and your understanding of being in Japan, how, uh, how realistic was that movie, or was it just a, a dramatized, um, a, you know, version of something that might not have happened exactly that way?
0: Yeah, no, I, I think um, it was actually a pretty good reflection of of um, the kinds of things that happened at the time. Um, you know, I think uh, Shusaku Endo, who who wrote the original book Silence, um, he's a Roman Catholic. Uh, but I think he was a conflicted Roman Catholic in that he um, he was a bit cynical. He he just really wasn't sure um, how to how to get a handle on Japan's you know Christian history and and whether um, Western missionary influence was good or bad. Whether you know how to from the perspective of, of a, a nationalist Japanese whether this was good or so forth. So anyway, um, so the book itself, I think. Does not, in any way or form, glorify um, these Catholic missionaries who came to Japan and and faced you know the the situation that unfolded uh, during the late 1500s and the early 1600s. Because at the time, um, if you just a quick quick lesson in Japanese history here, Japan of course was divided up into a numerous you know probably a hundred or two hundred feudal estates. With these feudal lords, kind of little kings overseeing their own little kingdoms, and um, two guys—one uh, whose name was Nobunaga Oda, and another one, his name was Hideyoshi Toyotomi. These two guys were involved in unifying Japan, so they they formed alliances, and and gradually um, the uh, the kingdoms, these little feudal kingdoms, gradually came under the power of these sort of overlords. And then the the one who actually completed that process was um, Tokugawa. His he was the first of the Tokugawa um, generals, or they're called shoguns, if you recall the the uh, the novel called Shogun. But um, uh, Tokugawa completed the process of unifying Japan. There were there was like a big civil war, and then you know he brought all of these. Uh, little kingdoms under his authority. And in order to subject, make sure that they stayed under his authority, he set up a pretty rigorous um, system that uh, involved people reporting on each other, uh, spying on each other, reporting on each other. And um, for example, even down to the local level where in villages and towns, um they were all divided into groups of five families and if if something suspicious occurred within that group and someone in the group didn't report it then the whole group was executed um, or imprisoned so so it was a system that forced everybody to be responsible for everybody else and and within that structure one of Tokugawa's biggest concerns was the increasing, uh, loyalty of, of, uh, a number of Japanese, um, feudal lords to the Christian faith. So, um, his, one of his primary policy objectives was to eradicate the Christian faith in Japan. And, and so that's, that's the, the historical background for this happening. And, and depending on the, the region that, um, these various feudal lords were in, there was greater or lesser freedom, depending on the local lord's perspective of Christianity, but, but you know, relentlessly, Tokugawa pursued bringing all of these lords under his authority, and making them um, sort of uh, swear loyalty to him over Jesus Christ, or over the Virgin Mary, or whatever. And so the, the tool that he used was a bronze, um, it was a kind of a bronze etching of, of Jesus Christ on the cross or of, of the Virgin Mary. And these lords were told to step on, to stamp on this or to step on it to show their allegiance to him over Christ. And, you know, eventually, uh, pretty much the whole country, at least publicly came to the point where they acknowledged love to him over Jesus Christ, but it was a, it was a it was a definite decision that they had to make to choose one over the other, and if they chose if they wouldn't step on that on that bronze etching, then they were put to death or they were um, exiled to an island somewhere or imprisoned or whatever. So it was you know it was a pretty um, sort of a harsh time uh, in Japanese history toward Christians. And, and I think Tokugawa pretty much thought that he had eradicated Christians, but in reality there were tens of thousands who, who just kind of went underground and, and actually um, carried on the Christian faith for 250 years until the, the Tokugawa period came to an end.
1: What you just described really is basic Christianity in the 1960s and and early 70s inside of China where um, individual family members were required by law to report on each other. And if they weren't, it was the entire kind of cluster that would be um, uh, persecuted, either imprisoned or, like you said, killed. Um, That is the same situation that we're seeing in North Korea right now. This is almost Mm -hmm. uniquely Asian. uh, yeah. where you where individuals are responsible for reporting on others to the point where right now in North Korea if you are arrested it 's not just you it is your family members to the third generation whether it be you your children and your grandchildren or you yeah. your your parents and your grandparents yeah. um, and and even though you might be the one in the gulag uh, your family members or those that might have known about you and didn 't report on you they have to go to a certain family housing center that is associated with the gulag it's not in the gulag per se but you're still imprisoned right. in a housing unit um that is attached to the gulag for the crime of not reporting on someone who uh was um uh following christianity uh what what you were talking about just a minute ago which i found what i found fascinating because this is something that we have not seen in china and we haven't seen it in North Korea either. And it almost seemed to be um, a- a- effective in the most gruesome of ways, uh, for what, at yeah. least what they portrayed there in Japan, which was they didn't go after the normal followers per se, but ingeniously what they did was they went after the lay people, the leaders, the leadership. And it was almost like if you remember the scene in the movie where they had the lay people hung on crosses out to, and put them out to the sea and waited for the high tide to basically drown them and then they burned right. their bodies so that every Everybody in the community could see, uh, and they almost did that as a way to kind of bring out these foreign missionaries. Um, the, the thing that I found fascinating was that they preserved these missionaries. They didn't kill them right away. And in fact, they tortured them over time with, one, seeing the death of their their, their fellow believers as kind of a, a type of punishment and said, you know, right. a, a, this mental anguish of – Well, you could save them. You know you could save them. All you have to do is deny Christ. And because you're not denying Christ, you're bringing punishment upon these people. So all the people start to see the lay people as being selfish individuals. Why don't you just deny Christ so that you can relieve us of our pain? That I felt was ingenious because instead of just killing the Christians, you know, as many as you can, as quickly as you can and eradicating them, they kind of wanted to squash the root of it by taking the leaders and torturing the leaders and making the leaders in front of their followers deny Christ. And I, as I watched that, I mean, it was painful to even watch to, to think of these uh, zealous individuals who gave up their lives to go to an unknown, dangerous part of the world to share the gospel now. Being forced to deny Christ through you know numerous ways of torture, uh, right. uh, that that was tough for me to watch, and that's something that they they haven't done inside of China, they haven't done in North Korea as of yet, and it seemed to be at least from my point of view when I was watching it, I was like, wow, I I pray that never happens, you know, to us. Um, but that seemed to be an extremely effective way to. Uh, Hit Christianity straight head on.
0: That's right. Yeah, and I think especially because um, to those who are in the West, you know, we tend to be a little more individualistic, and and we don't really have the deep emotional pull that um, an Asian who comes from a Confucian worldview has. Whether it's Chinese, Japanese, Korean, um, you know, if your if your if your perspective is Confucian, then um, your your connectedness with other people is such a strong value you know you're part of a group and you constantly see yourself in relationship to those above you those below you those who are your peers your family members and so forth and from the time you're you're young you know from the time you're little um the values that are sort of drilled into you are your obligations to the other people in your group in in your you know and so so for um For a Japanese person uh, or, you know, presumably Chinese or Korean, same thing, Um, that knowledge that their actions are going to affect the whole group just is incredibly um, powerful in terms of determining how they make decisions and so forth. I mean, you know, if it was a, a typical Britisher or American or even from other parts of Europe, a person might say, "Well, you know, that person has to deal with their own circumstances, or they have to make their own decisions, or they have to face their own consequences. I'm me, he is him, whatever, you know." And, and we might be able to just sort of insulate ourselves and our actions from those around us. But that's not what that's not what the Asian worldview does, as you well know. <laughs>
1: so. Can I can I ask you uh, when you watch this uh, this this film? Uh, what was kind of your uh, reaction? Um, I mean, going from beginning to end, because I mean, the the people watching it from the beginning, those that watching it in the middle, and those that watching it in the end might have a completely different reaction to each segment of, of this film. What you know, you being in Japan, giving your entire life for Japan, your your family giving their lives um, to share the gospel in Japan. What was the walk away feeling that you had after wa- watching this?
0: Well, you know, I think, I don't think anybody walks away from watching it or reading the book feeling encouraged. You know, it's a, it's a very, very discouraging, um, movie. You know, I mean, it, it, it doesn't do anything to help us, um, see human nature in a, in a positive light. Um, you know, there's just so much fickleness and, and I think it, I think it portrays the conflict really well that, um sort of the conflict of faith in the face of persecution and kind of the issues that um that you know that a person de- deals with i first saw the original version of of this movie which was back it came out in the early 70s um i think i believe it was produced in japan if i'm not mistaken but um as a high school kid it just had a huge impact on me, you know. In, in terms of saying, you know, if I, I was in the position of some of the, the believers and the priests in that in that movie, what would I do? You know, and I think that's that's the sort of the message. That's the question that one is left it with after watching it: is if I was in that person's position, what would I do? If I was being told to either step on on the figure of Christ or the figure of the Virgin Mary or whatever it is, you know, step on a Bible or whatever, or um, see my neighbors and family members be executed and tortured, what would I do? And I think that's the bottom line that we all have to ask ourselves, whether we've seen this movie or not. It's, uh, you know, Jesus says we're all going to be persecuted. It's something that is possible for anyone, any one of us be persecuted for our faith. And when that happens, how are we going to respond? Uh,
1: spoiler alert for anybody that is listening to this and, and has not actually seen the movie. It does not end on a good note as, as you are pointing out, Tim. Um, when, uh, one of the things that I found interesting was how the director and, and the, the movie itself really did put the onus of the people suffering on the Christians. Um, right. Which I found to be a bit of a false argument. I mean, the right. Christians aren't the ones torturing the people. They're not the ones strapping people to a cross and putting them out in the ocean. Um, I, you know, there, there's a lot of people out there that says, "Well, you know, let's." People need to have their their own culture uh, okay well, then why is it that um, the 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 people that are doing the torture are not having any of this responsibility for the people 's safety on them if right. if if Christianity is such a dangerous um, a, a religion why is it that they're the only ones that are supposed to have compassion for others that the right. only way that they can save other people from the hands of the aggressors by the way is to deny right. their faith to step on an image of a of a, even if you don't believe in Christ as, as, as God um, step on the face of an individual who did nothing but show love and give his life for others um, so I, I found that to be a bit of a false choice that was really strongly portrayed by the movie um, which was very strongly portrayed by the people that the the onus is on the Christians that they have to deny their faith because they are the reasons why the people are being tortured well, no, they're not the reason the people are being tortured. The people are being tortured by, you know, the soldiers, the the, the representatives of the magistrate.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and I think that's, um, you know, that's the convenient little truth that's often left out in, whether in ancient times or modern times. But I think another unspoken message that's there is that um, there's a, there's a bit of a pressure that's put on believers um, through this movie and through other other media sort of presentations that deal with similar issues that, you know, it's perfectly all right for you to have your faith, uh, but just keep it inside yourself. You know, don't, don't force it on others and don't put it on display for others to see. Because if... If the people who are, you know, the characters portrayed in this movie, if they had just kept their faith internally, kept it to themselves, um, you know, everything would have been fine. Why do you have to insist on confessing it publicly? You know, and that's, I think, that's always been the question that is put before Christians from the very beginning of the church. You know, in the Book of Acts, you know, even even the apostles when they were called in before the Sanhedrin. Okay, you guys can believe. What Whatever you want, but just keep it to yourselves. Don't don't tell it to anybody else. And ultimately the punishment comes because Christians are public about their faith and they're confessing Christ. But but there's always this subtle pressure keep it to yourself. You know, you're perfect perfectly free to believe whatever you want, just as long as you don't do it in a public way.
1: One of the things that I found interesting is that as I was, you know, kind of watching this movie, maybe I see it from a different perspective than most people. Kind of maybe I read into it a little bit more and kind of make parallels between different things. Um, but you know, working in—I I just came from Iraq just now, um, but working in Iraq, working in Iran, seeing the Book of Acts as you were just talking about—I find it f- phenomenal that no matter what culture you look at, no matter what time period you look at, there is always this. Over- overwhelming desire that's not found anywhere else with any other religion that you must get Christians to uh uh deny their confession of christ they that you must torture them until they deny it um we we see it in the roman history we see it in the you know there's not this push per se to have people deny Allah there's not this right. push per se and, and not only that but this 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 tenacity by you know not to over spiritualize it but almost as if they are they they are 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 being uh possessed by the same spirit that possessed uh, uh, Pontius Pilate, that you have to kill these people, you have to get them. You know, you have to remove them from the society. There's, there's almost when, when, when you see the, a government rise up against Christianity, it turns tenacious very, very fast in a way that you don't see with any other religion. And so, when I was right. watching what was taking place with the Christians there in, in Japan, or at, at least as as it was being depicted. In in the movie, I cannot help but think this is a repeated story in history. Over and over again, governments go specifically after people that believe in love, peace, and a even if you don't believe in Christianity or the Bible, it is a book. You're gonna kill people in this manner and torture them systematically because of a book. Right. Uh, and so in that way, I cannot help but to see the spiritual side of this as being something much deeper than what I'm seeing with with, with my eyes on, on a very rational level. Because it's irrational. It seems very irrational. Yeah.
0: yeah. But, um, you know, it's interesting, um, sort of a, a um, spin-off story or a related story uh, that actually happened in our experience and one that you touched upon um, You know, Rob, you and I did some projects together in the wake of Japan's, uh, earthquake in 2011 and the tsunami and so forth. And, um, and you traveled up up to the Tohoku area to see the devastation there and so forth. But, um, one of the towns up there that was, that was, uh, almost obliterated by the tsunami, uh, the name of the town is called, uh, Minami Sandiku. And, uh, just inland from the coast, there's a site that um, in the course of going up there with relief work, um, I I was able to visit. It's an ancient uh, Christian site that dates back to the days that are portrayed in this movie Silence. And what actually happened was that the feudal lord in that area, um, a guy named Date, was very uh, sympathetic to the Christian faith, and, and he was a very powerful uh, overlord in that area stood up to the the shoguns and and they feared to overstep the boundaries and um, you know put the screws on him and so he actually created sort of a a protected community for um, Christians up in that area and so there were thousands of them and he also Found among Christians some of the greatest craftsmen of the day, people that were working with, that could work with iron and wood and so forth, and he brought them intentionally to build up his economic empire as well and the prosperity that was there. Well, uh, the older Date died and his son uh, succeeded him. The son was not nearly as sympathetic to the Christian faith, and so the son confessed allegiance to Tokugawa, and Tokugawa immediately said, okay, you've got to crack down on these Christians. And so an incredible persecution and massacres took place. And there's this one place there outside of the tsunami area, up in the hills, where you can drive around and see, there's little signs that describe, okay, there were, you know, 15 Christians who were killed here uh, by the sword. There were 15 or 20 or 30 who were crucified here. All within a matter of a few months, um, thousands were, were you know, sort of hounded herded together, executed, exiled, and so forth in this one little area. Well, the interesting thing that happened was um, at the end of the relief efforts up there in, in that area, um, a number of the, the Christian sort of pastors and missionaries who had helped in the relief efforts were called by the mayor, and the mayor gave a speech um, basically thanking them for all the you know incredible uh, relief efforts that um, Christians had made during this time. And in the course of the mayor's speech, he said this, he said, um, you know, hundreds of years ago, our ancestors put to death your um, forebears in the faith, uh, massacred them throughout the hills all around our town. Isn't it ironic that in our time of greatest need, it has been the Christians who have come back to help us here. And and this, these are the words that the mayor shared before the city council and the people in terms of expressing gratitude to the many Christians who had very faithfully and very uh, sacrificially um, worked to help the people of that town recover from the tsunami. So it's just interesting to see that from a modern perspective and, and see people that, you know, they knew what happened, and they see Christians coming back and serving and helping, and see the love of Christians, and that speaks very loudly regarding the credibility of the Christian faith.
1: Wow, that that is a phenomenal testimony. I, I know that we've arrived at time. I know that you're you're uh, right now. That you're short on time, and and that you need to wrap this up. But just for our audience, could you like within a minute or so just share about what the current spiritual climate is like in Japan, and if there's any um, prayer requests that those that are listening to this podcast can pray about when they think of Japan.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, the, uh, the Christian population of Japan is estimated to be somewhere in the vicinity of 0.5%, so half a percent would be um, professing Christians, I think probably if you include everybody, that in any remote way calls themselves a Christian, it's still less than 1%. So uh, Japan is a very needy country spiritually. However, there has been um, significant missionary effort here over the years. And, um, you know, I think a lot of Japanese have heard something about Christianity. Um, They're aware of little bits of the Christian faith and so forth. And some of the things that have happened in recent Japanese history—the um, the collapse of the economic bubble uh, back about 15, 20 years ago—you um, know there was a, there were a number of terrorist incidents that happened in Japan, and then of course the Kobe earthquake, and then most recently the 2011 earthquake and tsunami have created um, a little bit more of a, a spiritual seeking among Japanese people. And, and so we're seeing uh, more of an openness to the gospel among people. And also, I think some of the, the more traditional beliefs in Buddhism and Shintoism, the, the traditional Japanese religions, are beginning to wear thin. And people are not quite as committed to these traditional religions as in the past. So, um, so I'm encouraged by the opportunities to share faith at this time and certainly the aftermath of the tsunami in northern japan which was a which was a basically unreached part of japan as far as the gospel was concerned um just brought about tremendous opportunities to share christ uh, to the people there and that's continuing uh there are now churches where there weren't churches in the past you know there are christian workers up there still continuing to minister to people and so all of that is really exciting i think um the the more difficult challenges that we face are the challenges that um, Western Europe or even Eastern Europe, the uh, United States, Canada, you know, various parts of the world are facing, which is the onset of, I guess, the, the, for, for lack of a better word, the onset of the values of postmodernism, you know, where um, secular humanism, um, sort of a, a very emotional, subjective uh, approach to truth, as opposed to um, concepts of objective, absolute truth, relativism. You know, these kinds of things are sort of sweeping Japan right now. And so the influence of the media is huge, um, and I think that's, those are some of the challenges that those who are trying to share Christ are, are facing. And in reality, uh, the number of churches in Japan right now is declining, and the number of professing Christians is actually declining, which is not a good sign. So um, I think recently I, I saw a map uh, that showed parts of the world where the, the, the numbers of Christian believers are actually, designed, actually declining, and Japan is one of three places in the world where, where that is the case. So even though there's a receptivity to the gospel, um, we're not seeing, I mean, it it sounds ironic, but we're not seeing lots and lots of people come to Christ. So that would be my prayer, is just that the Lord would really open people's hearts so that there's not only an interest in the Christian faith or an interest in the Bible or an openness to hear about it, but people would actually commit to following Christ, because that, of course, is the bottom line that, that needs to take place. And if
1: people wanted to know more about what's taking place in Japan, specifically what you're doing in Japan, um, is there a website that you would encourage them to go to? Is there, if they want to find out more about what you're doing, where could they go for more information?
0: Yeah, for people who are on Facebook, um, if you just look up Family Forum Japan, um, I I have a page that I update daily that, that um, I try to to put various issues there that are of current interest regarding Japan. and and uh, particularly uh, family issues relating to family ministry in Japan. Um, but I think also uh, my, I would suggest that my mission, uh, team, my, the mission that I work with is called the Evangelical Alliance Mission, or TEAM for short. Um, if you look up TEAM in Japan, um, you'll, you'll see our mission website, which also has a lot of good information about um, the current situation in Japan. So, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of good websites, information. If you, if you just do Google searches, even, you know, a lot of good information will appear. But, um, but as far as me personally, if you look at Family Forum Japan on Facebook, that's probably the quickest way to, (laughs) to find out what I'm involved in and the ministries that, um, that I'm connected with. So.
1: Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much, Tim. It was really a great time this morning talking with you. Um, I know that you are uh, on your way to somewhere there in Japan. I think that you have a daily commitment that you have to get to. Um, we have gone over the half an hour mark that I promised we would try to keep it under. I apologize for that. I hope that we can come back and talk again because you are working on some very intriguing things that I would love, 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 love to share with our audience. So hopefully you'll be able to come back thank you so much for for joining us this morning
0: yeah and thank you for um letting me share some of these things and uh the lord bless you rob and your work i know you're it's got to be a challenge being away from home 300 days a year and i'm sure your wife probably appreciates the precious time you have at home so (laughs) have a good have a good day with her now
1: all right thanks bro appreciate it god bless all right
0: we'll talk to you later bye-bye
1: If you want to know more about Tim and and the things that he's doing, you can go to their main website, which is FFJ.GR.JP. Or like he said, you can go to their, uh, Facebook page where he's updating it on a regular basis. And that's Family Forum Japan. I just put it in as a Google search. It popped right up as, um, the, um, the, the Facebook became the, the number one kind of Google hit, uh, for me. And I, and I, I haven't actually been there before. Even though I've worked together with Tim and I'm, I'm Facebook friends with Tim himself. I I don't believe I've ever gone to the Family Forum Facebook page. I I don't know if I knew about it. Uh, or not, but it, it's it's chocked full of amazing information, um, and I'm so glad that uh, he was able to spend some time. Like he said, uh, we did work together back to Jerusalem, came together with him and 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 helped in the disaster relief effort. We were also involved in other projects that were outside of what um, Tim was doing. Tim was running a group called Crash, um, very closely associated with Focus on the Family with Dr. James. Dobson, one of my one of my heroes just from when I was a a child. Uh, or when I was when I, I got saved when I was 14 years old. So I was I was you know a teenager. So when I was 14 and I became a Christian, I decided at 14 that I'm only going to listen to Christian music. And when I first got my car, I promised God that I will only listen to Christian music in this car. And so every night when I went to bed from the age of 14 onwards, I only listened to the Christian radio. And I would actually listen to it as I went Went to sleep. Um, so I went to sleep every night listening to Christian radio, and I would wake up sometimes in the middle of the night um, uh, just really spiritually touched by teachings or certain songs that were coming across a uh, radio station that came out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, known as K Wave. Um, And it was, it was, um, or no, sorry, K-Wave was, is the, um, is the syndicate in California, uh, with Calvary Chapel. Uh, this was a, a WLBC. Actually, that was the name of it. Uh, I can't remember their, their call, but I mean, even now in my forties, I can still remember listening to this, um, Christian radio station, uh, when I was a kid. Um, yeah, WLBC. That was the, that was 104.1. It's actually out of Muncie, not out of Fort Wayne. But I would be listening. I'd go to sleep at night and listen and wake up in the middle of the night listening, um, to Dr. James Dobson and Dr. Vernon McGee. And, you know, these, these teach, these teachers, their voices became very strong. Um, uh, teachers for me, uh, when I, because I got saved at the age of 14, wasn't necessarily from a Christian practicing family. So a lot of the things that I learned from Dr. James Dobson helped shape some of the visions and thoughts and ideas that I have today, especially his amazing book, um, that he's put out, uh, uh, about, Um, When God Doesn't Make Sense, and he also did some amazing parenting books as well, one called Raising Boys or Bringing Up Boys. Um, When I first had my uh, two boys, these were really important books, and I know that Tim works very closely with them um, inside of Japan. We also, in Japan, in the area where there was the tsunami, we built a chapel. And that chapel has been able to um, uh, be a blessing for many people who have been coming to Christ. Uh, We set up a coffee, a mobile coffee. Um, shop that was able to go around to the different disaster areas and serve coffee to those that were doing the rebuilding effort. Uh, so th- Japan has been a big part of our, what we've been praying for since the tsunami brought it to our attention. I don't think that we as a group in China knew how unreached Japan really was until we became more exposed to the situation through the tsunami and working together with Tim. But if I go back and I look at this movie Silence and and what Tim had to share, um for me, <clears throat> one of the things that I really appreciate about Tim is that he shared about, you know, when he was watching or or uh, even himself going through the debate of what it would be like to see those that you love tortured and killed because you are not defying you are not denying your faith he did not say i would never do that i'm i'm glad he didn't because i always find that those that talk the loudest oftentimes are the first ones to kind of buckle when, when I, when, when I went into the Marine Corps, I can remember sitting on the bus going into MCRD San Diego, the Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego. It was nighttime. I was on a bus. It was dark. I didn't know anybody else on the bus. I was intimidated. I was a small town farm boy from Indiana. Um, probably weighed 125 pounds wet. And knew, I knew that these guys were absolutely going to chew me up and spit me out and there was probably no way that I would survive and I was scared out of my mind. But I'm sitting there beside individuals that look like they were, you know, muscle, like the guy that I was sitting beside looked like a bodybuilder. He's just this butch, man's man kind of guy that looked like he could take on Mike Tyson. And I knew that these guys were going to do good. The guy that was sitting beside me, he was going to do good. I was going to be the one with the problem. But one of the things that I learned, not just through MCRD San Diego, but also through some of the uh, upper echelon schools that I ended up going through for special operations, was that you never know who actually is going to survive the hard times. There were so many times in, in, in boot camp, and Marine Corps boot camp, as well as in sniper school, as well as in ranger school, that because I, I went through the U.S. Army ranger school as well, that I thought <clears throat> I was going to quit. I, I, I thought I'm about ready to make my way to the instructor and tell them that I am going to drop. But then I would see someone else suffering as bad as me, and they would quit first. And I don't know what that was, but that would always somehow give me a little bit more energy and say, you know what? You know what? Everybody's hurting. I can also do this. But the guy that was sitting beside me on that bus that night as we pulled into the darkness of MCRD San Diego, the bus doors opened up and on stomped this loud uh, um, MCRD boot camp instructor this marine instructor this drill instructor who came on yelling demanding that we say sir yes sir right away and then got us off the bus just just this absolute the moment that I got up from that bus seat it was a mayhem we did not sleep for two days. I, I don't know exactly where I was or what I was doing. I felt like I was going from one place to another in a fog. Um, whether I was eating or not, whether I was showering or not. I mean, my head was shaved. My, cho- my clothes were changed. I was throwing my clothes into a box. Somebody was always yelling at me. And from that moment, for three more months, I was never left alone. It was always intense yelling. But the guy that was sitting beside me, that was muscle-bound, he quit within the first week. I saw another guy. Also, physically, when you look at him, you would think that he's the guy that's really going to do well. He was in tears in the fetal position saying, I quit. I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. The The guy that beat Mike Tyson, um, can't remember his name right now. Um, Riddick Bow, I think, was that the guy? I can't remember exactly his name, but there was a guy, one of the guys, one of the few men to actually beat Mike Tyson. Um, also, one of those individuals that you just think that tough, strong, no quit, goes to Marine Corps boot camp, can't make it. You just, you just never know. You know, being in, in sniper school, Even after you've gone through the rigmaroles of being in Marine Corps boot camp, you get these guys that are that that look mean and and they've proven themselves, uh, you know, in the School of Infantry, and in in and their units they're quite well respected. But then they get into sniper school. You go five days and five nights of no sleep and no food through Hell Week, and these guys dry up and quit. And then you got these little, skinny, Steve Urkel, nerdy-looking guys with glasses almost as big as their face, screaming bloody murder with a rifle in their hand, ready to kill anything that they see. It's like you never saw that coming. It happens all the time. And the reason I say that is because there are many Christians who see this film. They see the torture of of... Friends and 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 close ministry partners that you care so deeply about being tortured and killed. And then you're being told that all you have to do to stop this pain is deny Christ. Just, you don't even have to believe it. And they even say that in the movie. You don't even have to believe it. Just put your foot on Christ. Stomp on him. Deny him. In front of everybody. And we'll let you go. We'll let your friends go. Nobody has to suffer. Why make them suffer anymore? And there's so many Christians that say that I would do. I would never deny Christ. I would never deny Christ. Maybe even tell Jesus to his face. I will never deny you. Does that sound familiar? Does the Bible ever tell us a story about a man who sat with Jesus And told him, if everybody else denies you, I won't. I would never do that. And Christ reveals something to him that he did not even know about himself. And I'm sure the moment that that promise came out of his mouth, he believed it wholeheartedly. I will never deny you. But Jesus revealed something about himself and did it in a loving way. Peter, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. There are so many things about ourselves that we don't know. And we can make promises to God. How many times have I? Committed a sin and promised to God. God, I promise I will never do that again. I swear it all my life. As sure as I'm alive. I will never commit that sin again. And then I do. But his grace and his forgiveness is much bigger than us. So should we go on lying? Should we go on sinning? God forbid, as Paul would say. No. You don't sin because you have the grace of God on your side. That shows that you are abusive to the grace of God and therefore probably have not received it. If you would take the crucifixion on the cross so lightly... As to lie about it and use it as an easy trading card to kind of trade you out of what you think is a hard situation. And then only to get out of that situation and know that while I can sin right now and if anything bad happens I can just go back to Christ for forgiveness. Then you haven't really been transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Your love for Christ is non-existent. Because those that have been transformed by the love of Christ find hardship in denying his name. They have this overwhelming guilt that they cling to the cross knowing that it's only through grace and forgiveness that they can be redeemed for their hideous sin. As I watched that movie and saw the persecution that the Christians went through, I know that the ending doesn't end well. That it can be a bit of a, uh, of, of a downer at the end to think that these great giants of faith that went out and preached the gospel in a place that is as dark as Japan, ended up, and there there was a good note that kind of leaves the audience in, um, uh, w- with the question of whether the the the, the priest that went to go. Preach the gospel or to, to find Father Ferreira, his hero, and to find out if he was truly an apostate or not. There, there was this, this, the end of the movie, um, that kind of leaves the question hanging in your mind, whether he really denied Christ or not. Maybe he just did it in order to survive. And it feels like such a downer, but I, I have to say that there was something beautiful in the suffering. In the depiction, because Christianity is the only religion, the only belief where people will give their lives for complete strangers that they don't even know, just so they can have the chance to hear the good news, just like their leader. These crazy people that call themselves Christians will go into the harshest of situations, to the poorest of places, to the people that are suffering the most and give their lives so that those individuals might have hope and experience life and experience life more abundantly and will give up their cushiony life in order to be in those dark places for individuals that they do not even know. And the persecution that they are willing to endure goes to the extreme. No other religion on the, in the, on the earth does that. And no other religion on earth is as targeted like Christians are in these dark areas by tyrant leaders who want to wipe them off the face of the earth just because they want to show love and sacrifice for their fellow man. No other religion like it. So when I was watching the depiction of the suffering of the the, the missionaries that went there, I was moved. I was compelled to do more. I was compelled to give more. I was compelled to continue following this back to Jerusalem vision further, faster, deeper than ever before. When I watched those men go into Japan, I felt excitement. Not in the way of happiness, but excitement in the way of giving energy to the cause. And that was further fueled by the good hearts and the honesty of those that too were willing to give their lives and sacrifice to protect those that came. I see that on a regular basis inside of China. Brother Ren, if you're familiar with Brother Ren, he has a story of one of the times when he was arrested inside of China. He goes into a factory and is preaching among the Chinese in the factory. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, all of the lights inside of the factory... Go out. It was at nighttime. They were preaching under the cover of darkness in this factory facility. All the lights were shut off. Almost like a loss of electricity. What they did not know is that the entire building that Brother Wren was preaching in was surrounded by the police. Led by the PSB that knew that there was a religious meeting taking place. They cut the electricity. As soon as the electricity was cut, the police rushed in, swinging their clubs, breaking the skulls of anybody that they could that was in the area. And those precious believers inside of China, instead of worrying about their own safety, also they were caught up in the same confusion. Not knowing what was happening, it was dark. Voices started b- to be heard from the back of the room, screaming and pain and and uh, the the shouting of uh, uh, of police officers as they came busting into the room, even though there was that immediate feeling of confusion, still the amazing, honest, humble believers inside of China had the wherewithal to stand up and throw their bodies on to Brother Wren to protect him from being hit by the clubs of the furious police that were trying to break up this Christian meeting, not knowing that there was a foreigner in their midst. That balance of hungry saints that want more of the light in their dark communities And then those that are coming from communities of light, carrying in their vessel the message of Jesus Christ into those dark areas. The unity of those two souls coming together. Those living in darkness, desiring light. Those coming from darkness, bringing light. Coming together and becoming one in the body of Christ is an amazing story that has gone on for 2,000 years since the days of the book of Acts. And in that way, I feel that this is a movie for every believer to watch. You may not agree with it, but sometimes it's healthy for us to watch things that are not comfortable. To watch things that we don't agree with. To watch things that don't have a good ending. It is the essence of the book of wisdom that we get from the very hand of King Solomon when we we read from the book of ecclesiastes one of my favorite books that talks about a time to live and a time to die a time to be blessed and a time to suffer a time for war and a time for peace that book tells us that it's not always good To be in a constant state of happiness from time to time. It is important for us to realize that our time on earth is short. To be reminded of the fact that death is right around the corner. To be reminded that our unification with our Messiah is near. This movie, though it doesn't have a good ending, I would recommend it for any Christian that is praying for Back to Jerusalem or for those that are in Japan. Thank you so much for joining us for a special podcast of Back to Jerusalem. Again, I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Hong Kong, communicating with our friends in Japan. God bless you.